Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week is so much fun. I've been chomping at the bit to put this episode out for months. We are talking to Andy Richards. Now, Andy came into prominence in the early 80s when he was discovered by, somebody get the ding, Trevor Horn to enter Sar- to work at Sarm Studios and play on a lot of the music that uh, Trevor was doing at the time. Andy was a keyboardist. Okay, so that means that he starts playing on the stuff that's coming out of Sarm, like Frankie Goes to Hollywood and Propaganda. He goes on after this because of kind of how good he is and the equipment he has. He gets called on to be this go-to keyboardist for lots of people, including Rush, which is why you're listening to uh, Time Stand Still right now. I had to write them all down. Let me see here. Okay, so we go, there's um, Wham. He played keyboards on Careless Whisper from Wham. Uh, he played on a Holly Johnson solo album, Billy Squire, Pet Shop Boys. He did a ton of work with Pet Shop Boys. Liza Minnelli, Dusty Springfield, Krista Berg, Lady in Red. That's an interesting topic on here. Godly and Cream's Cry. Remember Cry? Everyone knows Cry. He played on that. There's uh, OMD. There's Seal. There's Grace Jones. There's Nick Kershaw. He also goes into production. And he produces albums by artists like Tapau and Corey Hart. That's a really interesting story, too. And he did some uh, some soundtrack work. In fact, he played keyboards on the Oscar-winning soundtrack to Slumdog Millionaire. So there's a ton. And, and Andy is the best because he tells it like it is. He is a straight shooter. So nice and so complimentary, but also tells the truth. And we're so, we love people like Andy. Anyway, you know what's really interesting is I've actually been hanging on to this one for a while. I think we did this in April. And we talk a little bit in here about Chris Hughes. And at the time of talking with Andy, I had no idea that I would be talking with Chris Hughes like a month later or something like that. So anyway, interesting bit of trivia. Now, Andy's working on a project of his own. He talks about it here at the end. He's also um, sort of promoting, much like Jay Graydon did when Jay came on for that bonus episode. Talks about a keyboard, a piece of software. I'm not that technical, as you know. But anyway, so listen up to the very end because you're going to learn more about Andy and what he's working on, what he's doing. So much fun. I loved Andy Richards. This is such a great conversation. He called me from his home in West London. You have a really interesting background, and normally I would start there, but I actually want to start somewhere else, and we'll get back to that. The reason being is that I'm really fascinated by the work that you did with Rush, and especially now that we've recently lost Neil lost, Peart. Lost Neil, yes. Yes, and um, I'm really curious what that was like because that period, as you know, it was a. Some people love that period, like me, because I'm more partial to '80s synth music and new wave and everything. And a lot of the Rush purists can't stand it because it got too synthy. And I, I'm wondering what I that was like. Understand. For you. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm wondering what that was like for you. What was the reality of that situation? Were you seeing that Getty and Neil were fighting for synths and Alex was pushing back? What was the Uh, vibe like in the room? I never really got that that, that kind of vibe. I did get the sense at one point that Alex might might be concerned about it becoming too over-synthed, if you like, Mm -hmm. Uh, and his, his guitar being pushed pushed back but i don't think that ever happened to be honest yeah. I mean, listen to them his guitar when it's, it needs to be there his guitars are there right. but I, I was um i was working with a producer called peter collins mm-hmm. uh, who i met at psalm west when i was working with frankie goes to hollywood and trevor horn 
And, you know, at the time I was kind of doing so many sessions, I was kind of like the hot dude at the time. <laughs> and I mean, I was reading a Getty interview and Getty said I was the, 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 the synth god du jour at the time. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's very sweet you, Getty. I never, I never considered myself like that at all. You just uh -huh. do the work, you know, and on you go. But Peter Collins was invited to uh, produce uh, Power Windows. And he spoke to the band and said, look, I'd like to bring another element into this. You know, it's, mm -hmm. this is where we are. And there are synths and lots of wonderful sounds to use. And wanted me to come in and uh, play with the band. Or rather, record, record overdub on their tracks. And apparently the band weren't very happy about the idea. Because they're so used to being the three of them. And of course, that's, that's what they are. But anyway, I think the deal was that I would come, I'd be booked for 10 days, but if they didn't like me or what I was doing, they'd send me packing. Mm. Anyway, it started and it was the most fantastic time. I mean, I loved the guys. They were very mm. similar ages to me. Mm. And I got my job done in seven days, the first album, mm. 10, I think. Mm -hmm. And it, it was just so, it was so completely effortless. Yeah. And what's interesting that I'd never been a Rush fan as such, and I'd never really listened to their music. So I was able to come into it kind of completely impartial and say, well, look, this is what I do. I'll yeah. offer things up. Getty might come up with an idea and say, hey, you could try a bit of this or whatever. And it was just completely effortless, I have to say, mm -hmm. John. Yeah. That's and, fantastic. Uh, they got, seem, they're famous for being just the most regular, seemingly nice guys, regular guys in the business. That's what they are. Yes, yeah. that's what they are. And because there's just the three of them and they go everywhere together when they're obviously touring, traveling, recording, they've got this wonderful sort of repartee mm -hmm. uh, between mm -hmm. them. And it's just a joy to sit in a room and listen to them go, you know, yeah. <laughs> do yeah. their thing. They're, they're very, I mean, they, they there was never any sense of any tension between any of them. It was just fantastic. Good. First album, Power Windows, we, uh, we did Manor Studios. We'd sit at the the table in the kitchen, and Getty would bring out Stolich Schneier from the uh, from the freezer next door, <laughs> and that was called the launching pad. <laughs> uh -huh. So they they liked their social time as well as their work time. Yeah, I bet. 
I think it was I've day three hours at the manor and the studio doors flung open and Getty came in with a white sheet and asked me to wear it like a Rick Wakeman cape. <laughs> <laughs> no way. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, when he did that, I thought, okay, they wouldn't be pulling this one on me unless they were happy with what I was doing. Right. I did get invited back to uh, basically hold your fire. work on Hold Your Fire as well. Yeah. And I think at that point they, they felt that it was time to go somewhere else, you know. And yeah. uh, if I'd been them, I would have made that decision too. Yeah. Do you have a favorite moment? Well, let me ask you this first. Before I want to know if you have a favorite moment. But for instance, when I listen to Rush and I'm listening to uh, a song like Big Money, is are the synths that I'm listening to, is that you? Uh, I believe so. Okay, because I'm sure in live and concert, we're meant to believe that the three of them are the ones doing it, and, and oh, he's doing both the synths and the bass. Uh, uh, were you teaching him those parts as you're doing them? I'm just going to put it open, open up uh, Power Windows and on uh, Apple Music so I can refresh my memory of these things. That's so funny. Julian Mendelssohn did the exact same thing. I would ask him about something, and he'd say, oh, did I play on that? And then he'd pull it up <laughs> and listen to it for a minute, and he'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, now I remember, you know. When did you chat with Julian? It was probably two or three months ago now. He was great. He yeah. mentioned you a few times in, uh, in there. Well, that's very sweet of him. I mean, I, I should say at this stage, Julian's, I have, I have a huge debt of gratitude to Julian because without him mentioning me to Trevor Horn, yeah. I would never have worked on any of these tracks. Right. Trevor is, um, he's, a, he's a favorite of mine. So I'm going to ask you more about working with him as well and what all that was like. I find him fascinating. That synth thing, dee da da da. Yeah, yeah. That's me. Is it? Yeah. Wow, that's great. Yeah. That's my super Jupiter brass. That's my brass sound. Okay. I love it. And then you've got that da 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 da. That uh -huh. would be my sequence of stuff. Wow. Pootling away. Yeah, those two albums. I especially like Hold Your Fire and Time Stand Still is a favorite of mine. And Stand Still's great, yes. Yes. Yeah. So I now was the was the vibe and the you know the friendliness, the joviality the same on Hold Your Fire or did anything change by then? No, it was just as good. It was a different studio. We the, the second studio we um, recorded at Ridge Farm. Okay. It okay. Was, was nicer control room to work in because it was a bit smaller. Uh huh. But we still had a wonderful time, and they had this lovely round, big round dining table, and our breakfasts there were fantastic with the band there, and their repartee and whatever. Yeah. And I, I confided in confided to Getty at one point. I had a I had a girlfriend who was a bit like a a bunny boiler. What? <laughs> I wanted, <laughs> I, I, I've never heard that. I like it. <laughs> well, you, you know, you know from from that movie, don't you? The Michael yeah, Douglas. Yeah, of course. Fatal Attraction. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, she wasn't that bad, but but right. it was claws were in, you know. Uh -huh. And when I tried to move, the claws went with me, and uh -huh. and so I was talking to Getty about it one day, and Getty said, "Well, you could always tell her what uh, Woody Woody Allen's character said to." Uh, Diane, Diane Keaton, Annie Hall, on the plane on the way back when they were actually were breaking up, and he he said, "Well, a relationship's a bit like a shark; it has to keep going forwards or it dies." And what we have here is a dead shark. <laughs> I, I didn't actually use that to get rid of. Her. Oh, I don't know what she would have said to that. That's great. Huh? 
I wonder what she would have said to that. I don't think it would have been much appreciated, to be honest. <laughs> That's great. But I love, I love that movie. I just thought Diane Keaton was at her most wonderful then. I thought it's it was, such a good movie. Yeah, such, such a good one. You know, these little kind of gems would come out, but you must understand that with Rush, it was very kind of bang, bang, bang. It just went from one track to another, and it was just like, what do you think of this? What do you got any ideas? Maybe try a bit of this, try a bit of that. It was just full on. So it, most enjoyable. I mean, one of the best sessions I've ever done. Okay. But uh, because it's so fast and full on, you don't really remember everything about it because okay. it just passes into the history in your brain cells somewhere. Having said right. that, a few people have asked me about Rush and it sort of does prompt and remind me of certain things. I remember, remember when I turned up at the, at the manor to, uh, to work on power windows and I was greeted by Neil. And he came, bounded up and shook my hand. He's such a lovely man. And he, one of the first things he said to me was how much he loved the Propaganda album. Yes. That I played on. Yeah. And he just thought it was the most fantastic record. So Neil had a very, very eclectic taste. Yes. Oh, that's good to hear. I love that album too. He heard some of my work and thought, well, I'm not a complete Wally. Yeah. Uh, and give me a go. And obviously I was invited back again, so it can't have been all bad. There was one conversation we had where I think Getty said, well, it'd be really cool if you toured with us, Andy. That never happened. I think partly, I mean, it would have been a fantastic experience, but I think yeah. in, in the cold light of day, they realized that, you know, the rush is the three of them and that yeah. is, you know. Yeah. Has anyone else ever asked you to tour with them? I don't. I mean, I know in the early days when your primary focus was being a keyboard player versus a producer, or, you know, someone for hire. Yeah. But has you know, did you ever go on tour with the Pet Shop Boys or anything like that? No, never with the Pet Shop Boys. I I did some dates with Annie Lennox. Oh yeah, during the Medusa period. Yeah. The, after yeah 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 yeah. Okay. yeah. She she did a few kind of select gigs in Paris and. Poland, which was interesting, and oh. and also in New York and uh, Los Angeles and Toronto. Okay. So I kind of went around and did those gigs with her. Okay. Okay. Pretty much, by the time I kind of got into sessions and I was a hired hand, the live stuff started to go away because um, okay. also you know touring and playing live, John, it's it's a terrible thing to say, but it's almost a complete waste of time because you. <laughs> You, you, you're traveling and you're doing stuff, but yeah. you're only actually playing for like an hour and a half a day. Yeah. And sometimes you'd have the day off because you're t traveling somewhere else or whatever. And yeah. it's just a lot of wasted time. Yeah. I mean, today, yeah. these days, now with our laptops and computers and whatever, obviously we can make records on the go. So it's not mm -hmm. difficult. But then it was it was tough. Yeah, yeah. I believe it. Um, okay, last Rush-related question. Were you... Um, can you remember a time when you guys were in the room or in the studio or whatever, and Neil just went full Neil on the drums and were you and sitting next to being in the room while it's happening? Is it as amazing as I imagine it being? Well, I've heard him play and it is, it is amazing, but that wasn't the way we operated. I was, uh, I came in to do overdubs. Oh, so okay. My, my thing was setting my equipment up in the control room. And working directly with uh, Peter Collins and his engineer, Jimbo Barton, mm -hmm. and also um, the band. I mean, normally, normally it was Getty was there most of the time, from what I remember. Mm -hmm. But I was so I was basically overdubbing to backing tracks they'd done. But what a joy to do that, because yeah. Neil's drums were just so fantastic and tight yeah. and inspirational. And they're almost like a musical track all of their own, you know. Yeah, they're, yeah they're they are. Things. 
yeah. And I, was, I was very sad to hear of him passing away. I thought that was that was so so sad. But he had a, yeah, he had a tough life because I think he lost a, a wife and a daughter. He did and, within a year of each yeah, other, and, and then, uh, he left the band and went to find himself. Yep, yep. And then came back. Yeah. Yeah, he seems like a pretty remarkable. They all do. I mean, all three of them. I just love them. They're so. Yeah. They seem so regular. No, they they are very regular guys. They're charming, yeah. absolutely yeah. charming. I loved my time with them. And uh, when I read one of Getty's interviews complimenting me, I thought, well, that's really nice. You know, mm -hmm. that's really sweet of him. He didn't have to do that. It really is. Because you know, a Look. lot of bands, a lot of bands will try and bury the work that you do. Oh. To to, to make it feel like it's them. Yeah. Uh, when the album's finished, it's their album. They've forgotten about the producer. They've forgotten about the other people who are involved. It's it's like it's their album, and everything just just goes. So I mean, I think particularly with 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 Rush, they were very generous to me. Yeah, good. Let's talk. How do, you know working with Trevor Horn, becoming a part of Trevor's group or family? It seems like if I look over your credits there's a lot of stuff prior to that but a lot of it's stuff i'm afraid i don't know that much about you well, know it's not, they aren't names that leap to mind or anything no well but, the thing was i was a i was a having obviously worked with strobes just that keyboard player and maddie yeah. Pratt, and a few other people i became a session player and i was working in manchester and i became quite a big fish in a small pond there you know i, mm -hmm. I did I did pretty well i guess yeah then I was invited to go and play the keyboards on a gantry for a show called Electric Ice at the Victoria Palace Theatre in London, in Victoria. And it was like a, a nine or 11 week gig. And I thought, well, that'd be, that'd be really nice. So I poodled down there with my friend Chaz, who was the bass player in the Straubs. And we did the gig. I, I lived in London, obviously, for that time. Extraordinary thing. You know, we were on this gantry. Mm -hmm risen up above the ice the whole, mm. the, the whole stage had been basically iced over and you had all these skaters below wow. extraordinary and it must have been about seven eight eight weeks in i got a call from my wife at the time and she said that in the last 12 hours there'd been i'd had two calls one from trevor horn and the other from the band yes <laughs> i mean you know you can't make this stuff up. I mean, right. I was I was a nobody. I was in London just doing my thing. So anyway, uh -huh. I went and auditioned for Yes, and I didn't get it, but I didn't really enjoy it very much because there's an ego thing there, definitely. Okay, yeah. I didn't really want to be feel like I wanted to be part of that. Mm -hmm. And then I went to meet Trevor Horn, and he said, okay, let's just do some stuff. So we, we did Ferry Cross the Mersey, first of all. Their own 
Which was the B side to Relax. My memory serves me right. Yeah. And we started on Relax, mm-hmm. and it was so successful that I, I I worked with him off and on for quite a few years afterwards. Yeah, my understanding of that moment is actually that there were multiple recordings of Relax already out there, not on the airwaves, out there that you guys were working on. Yeah. And Trevor didn't wasn't sure about any of them. And well, you kind of swooped in and... There were no? records. Uh, I mean, one, one version was the band. Yeah. Uh, the third version I know was with the Blockheads. And that's where the motif, not the sound, mm. but the motif, bam, 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 yeah. came about. But The but, Blockheads play on that? Like no. Ian Dury's band? Well, they did a version with Trevor. Oh, I didn't know that. Or, or part of a version. I mean, certainly Chaz Jankel did, but it, nothing really I love came Chaz Jankel. I've had him on here, actually. Uh, he's great. He is great. Yeah. So, so the track wasn't finished, and it wasn't really going anywhere, because all it really was, it was like a, a, a sort of a sequence of piano, bass, and a riff, and uh, a, a few vocals. Mm-hmm. And it didn't have any color. It didn't have any sort of light and shade and no motifs in it. And right. Nothing like that. So anyway, that came the time, and, and Trevor was Trevor was uh, kind of upset that we weren't getting anywhere, and he sort of stormed out of the studio, sort of. Mm-hmm. And I just said to Lipson, "Come on, let's just crank it up and let's have some fun." Mm-hmm. And I basically came up with the chords, which are like mm-hmm. modal, and I think still to this day, "Relax" might be the only track pop record that actually starts with an E minor ninth chord. We, we started jamming and having a lot of fun and playing the chords around this thing. And there was something happening and Trevor came in and he just freaked out. He said, oh, don't stop, get this, <laughs> or this, here we yeah. go. And yeah. so that kind of gave us the, if you like, unlocked the page and made yeah. it possible for us to 
work on from there. And often the hardest thing of all, you know, is, is when you've got a blank sheet of paper. Although we didn't have a blank sheet, but there wasn't much there. Yeah, yeah. And then all the chords, the brass motifs, you know, the da-da-da-da-da-da-da, which is very yeah. similar to that other brass thing that we used the Rush, but the Rush thing had much more reverb on it. Uh-huh. Then all the other little motifs came about, and I had this Roland Jupiter 8 synthesizer. He uh, basically hoovered virtually all the sounds out of it that went on to relax. So my my friends up in Manchester, when they heard relax, they knew it had to be me because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I heard all the sounds before, but in right. a different context, of course, in a completely uh-huh. different context. Uh-huh. So, um, but it was Julian. I have to say it was Julian. Uh, I, I took a an album I produced down to him to be mixed. Mm-hmm. And we got along well, and he realized that, you know, basically I just played the whole, I played and programmed the whole album. Mm-hmm. And so when Trevor, Trevor asked for a, uh, asked for a programmer, I came to the front of his mind and yeah. it worked out. That's amazing. That's I mean, amazing. One, thing, one thing we know, I mean, I'm sure Relax would have been a hit of some kind mm-hmm. if, if I hadn't come along, but it would definitely be different because yes. it wouldn't have had my take on it. Right. Now, let me ask you kind of a hard question. And if this, if, if you don't want to answer this, you don't have to. Does any actual member of Frankie Goes to Hollywood appear on that song other than Holly? No. Yeah. Uh, Holly, Holly and Paul, Holly and Paul, and I think, sang, I think the lads might have sung a bit on it, but no, they didn't play anything. Okay. Okay. Not to my and, knowledge. Not absolutely not to my knowledge. Right. Okay. It's basically me, Lipson. Trevor working the drum machine and JJ on the Fairlight. Yeah. Um, what about the second album, Liverpool? I actually like that complete album better than Pleasure Dome. Pleasure Dome has some higher moments on it to me, but I yeah. really like Liverpool. Love like the head of Apollo, young and strong on the wings of tomorrow. Rise up in Indians, get off your knees, just battle. Was the band a little more involved with Liverpool, or was it more the same? The band was much more involved with Liverpool. I think Stephen took them over to Visselord in Holland, the studio in Holland, to work. And although I did some work on it, it's in Psalm West, there was much, much, it's much more of a band album. I mean, I think the problem with the first album, the Pleasure Dome album, half of it is sort of like a real studio album with, with 
Trevor and me and Stephen and JJ. And the other half is the band. Mm. And it's a weird combination. Yeah. Okay. Mm. You played on an album by a band called RPM, and the album is called Phonogenic. They didn't last very long. I, um, I've i had their lead singer and, and primary songwriter has been on here and he was a friend of mine, but he's a, he really likes Donald Trump a lot and I don't. And so he, uh, he doesn't like me anymore. I'm afraid we're not friends anymore because of it. And this is, this is what I find in general with people, right wing people, whether they're Republicans or whether they're, you know, full on right wing Brexiteers in the UK, they generally don't appreciate the arts very much. Very true. But I mean, and the other day, Haley, who used to be uh, the ambassador to the UN, she said that, that the, spent t- spending any money on the arts at all during this particular crisis was a complete waste of money. Yeah. I mean, how, how stupid can you be? I mean, what do people do when they get home? They I, watch televisions, they watch movies, they listen to music, they play games. This is all the arts. I mean, yeah. they do. That's what, so that's true. what helps prevent any sort of rioting in the streets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's well, so we true. Haven't, we haven't got there yet, but that, that must be a possibility at some point. I know. It's it's baffling to me. We should be bringing the world together, bringing communities together. And this virus shows us that, you know, yes. it basically puts two fingers up and say, fuck off, you idiots. I'm going to go wherever I want to go. So that, true. That's what it does. Yeah, so true. So, okay. Okay. We- Let me, uh, now, before we move off of, um, off of Trevor, let's talk about that propaganda album because A Secret Wish is so good and it's very synth heavy too i mean um are is that you as well or were you coming in to augment something that I they were already most, doing i played most of the keyboards on it really so like dream within a dream all this epic nine minute thing that's almost all beautiful synths that's mostly you Well, it's mostly me, yeah. I mean, they had another guy who came in and did a few bits and pieces. I think his name is Jonathan Sorrell. Okay. Uh, 
but but very limited, very limited. I mean, I was there, I was there pretty much the whole time it was being made. Um, I was there more than the band were, to be honest. Wow, wow, yeah, I uh, that but, I love that. So, don't Michael Merton's played at all on that album. The uh, the the guy who did a lot of a lot of composing. Okay. It just was, you know, we 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 had the gear, we knew how to use it, and we knew what we were doing. And I, I had a very good relationship with Lipson. Uh-huh. And we had some really good times. There's a there's a there's a track called Jewel. Yes, uh, one of my favorites. E L, and it sounds like there's a kind of a battle going on. Some, one, uh-huh. and that was me on my PPG with sounds loaded up, and that was Stephen on the Sinclair. And literally in live, we were just kind of bouncing stuff and blah, 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 and stuff all over the place. Really, each other. Yeah, it was great fun. So great. good, so yeah. good. And you were on. I think it's the follow up one, two, three, four. It's not as good, I don't think, as Secret I, Wish. It's okay. Anywhere near that. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, I, I, they, uh, I think Ian Stanley and Chris Hughes didn't want me involved at all. They, ah. they do it their own way. It was a completely different production team. Oh. And I know that I think Michael Mertens did try to get me involved, but they weren't having it, basically. The way they work is very different from the way we work. Yeah. And I didn't really, I wouldn't really want to do it anyway, to be honest. Mm. And it wasn't as good. And the, a lot of it was Betsy Cook uh, without without Claudia Brooker there. It was mm-hmm. very, a very different record in virtually every way. Yeah. Yeah, it loses a, a lot of the magic. And I'm a big Chris Hughes fan. I've said this on here many times. Trevor oh, Horn yeah. is my favorite producer, number one favorite producer of all time. And Chris Hughes is my number four favorite producer of all time. Right. And uh, so I like a lot of what Chris did, does in general. But yeah, the magic isn't there on one, two, three, four, like it is on Secret Wish. It isn't there, no. And um, I mean, I think, you know, Chris's work with Tears of Fears was just insane. It was fantastic. So what are your producers numbers two and three? Two is Steve Lillywhite. I love that Marshall drumming sound that he brought to like Big Country and U2 and stuff like that. Number three would be Nile Rogers. Oh, yeah. I love pretty much everything Nile touches. Yeah. and then Chris, and then five would probably be Quincy Jones, especially during the late seventies, early eighties, uh, brothers, Johnson, George Benson, Michael Jackson period. I love all that stuff. I mean, he's a completely unique, unique talent in his own right. Isn't he? Yeah, he sure is. I mean, I, I'd say, I'd say Quincy is possibly for me the greatest. Yeah. 
Yeah. I I don't doubt that. My the part that I love of his is mostly made up in this one ch- chunk of time and that's why I kind of push him down the list a little bit, but he's the best. Yeah. He's fantastic. And and you know his knowledge of music, mm-hmm. of style, of history. And I mean he was a true arranger and a true yeah. producer in the classic sense of the word. Yeah. Whereas if you look at the others that you mentioned, they weren't as, 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 as accomplished in all those areas. That Quincy true. Was. Totally true. Yeah, so true. Um, very talented in their own way. Yes. And, you know, Trevor was a very interesting person. I learned, learned a lot from Trevor. I have a lot to thank him for. Yeah. Because we, we you know, I learned a lot about making records and the sounds and whatever. And it was, it was good. It was yeah. very good. Um, okay. Now, <clears throat> I have to ask you, 1984, you play on... What was the number one song, 19 of the 52 weeks of that year? There's Relax, there's Two Tribes, and then there's Careless Whisper from Wham! What are you, I mean, is that mainly you or are you augmenting something? Is it an overdub? What are you doing on there? Oh, what on Careless Whisper? Yeah. Uh, well, I was working downstairs at Psalm. I was actually, I remember, it, was, it must have been, I think, a Thursday, Wednesday or Thursday. And I was playing on the Space Invaders machine and George came up to me. <laughs> That's so and, cool. I love just, that. Yes. And he just said, hey, Andy, do you fancy playing on one of my records on Sunday? I said, I said, I'd love to, George. I'd absolutely love to. And so there I took my PPG wave term and Jupiter 8 up to AdVision, a very strange little studio, where Chris Porter was uh, recording George doing a vocal. Mm. And I just listened and I just thought, fuck, I'm about yeah. playing another hit single. You know, that, I mean, it would have been a hit without me. To be yeah. But but I, I I played the keyboards and I also um, introduced him to sampling. First time his voice had ever been sampled. Oh. And if you listen to Chaos Whisper, there's some like da 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 da, some little vocally motif things. Yeah. And that's George being played on my key, P, PPG keyboard. No way. Yeah. So that kind of flipped him out. He loved that. And and so obviously, relax. We didn't know what was going to happen with relax because it was an odd thing. I mean, when I when I first heard the final mix, when I was 
in New York with Trevor, I thought it was extraordinary. But, you know, it sounded different from anything else. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. It kind of happened. But then while we were working on Two Tribes, we knew it was going to go straight in number one. Yeah. And while I was working on Careless Whisper, I knew it was going to go straight yeah. in number one. So it was just a fluky year. It was just a yeah. very, very strange year for me, but but rather wonderful. I have to tell a quick story about Relax. I have a friend, and every first Friday of December, he holds a Christmas party at the, the Punjab restaurant in Covent Garden. It's an Indian restaurant mm -hmm. where we have... A turkey ticker and curried Brussels sprouts. It's it's a, it's a tradition. It's been going about five years. Wow! And I was there a few years ago, and Mike Reed, the DJ, was there. Oh. And I I thought I'm going to have to go up and talk to this man. So I went up to Mike, and I said, "Look, Mike, you don't know me. My name's Andy Richards, but I just wanted to thank you for helping make my career." And he just looked at me as if I was some sort of idiot. <laughs> and I said. Yeah, I played on. I played the keyboards on Relax, and he just laughed because you know, you know, you know, he banned it on radio. Yeah, 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 yeah. that's him. And and he laughed. He said, "You know what?" He said, "I still dine out on this story every week." <laughs> <laughs> and we had quite a long chat. It was lovely. That's great. It was that was what did it. That's absolutely uh -huh. what did it. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Banning things always seems to have the opposite effect, doesn't it? Yeah, and we were, every week it was on top. Well, top of the pops was on, and it was never played, and we'd all cheer, and it was like, "Yeah, <laughs> this is great! How how fantastic!" Okay, yeah. now let me ask you this about Wham. Was Andrew Ridgely anywhere to be seen? No, uh, and I believe Andrew co-wrote it with George, and it yeah. went on the Wham album. And I've, I've met Andrew a few times. He's a lovely man, a lovely, lovely man. They both are. They're both Sweeties. Okay. But no, Andrew wasn't around at all. And, and in fact, Careless Whisper was. A George Michael, yeah, rather, right. than Wham, rather than the Wham record. Yeah, I know it's labeled as such. I just wondered if, uh, I don't know, if Andrew was around somewhere or if you saw him at all. You, you got to know him later, it sounds like. Who? George? Uh, Andrew. Andrew. No, I met, I met Andrew uh, in, in, in the management company a couple of times, and he was just charming. He was just a, just a very nice, charming, Good. regular guy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, as was George. I mean, he was he was the most lovely man. He was a very, very, very sensitive man. I mean, I remember we'd, we'd sit in the television kind of downstairs alcove where the television was, and he would uh, bring out a copy of The Sun, and he'd say, you know, look what they're writing about me. Not a word of this is true. It's really? complete fantasy and fabrication. And that really upset him because the press were pretty yeah. horrible to him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know why. Because he was gay, maybe. I don't maybe. know. But, but they were horrible to him, and... It's a shame. And uh, so many of these people, whether it's him or Prince or Whitney Houston or Michael Jackson or whatever, they never quite bounce back. You know, no. there's no it disrupts and uh, confuses life so greatly that yes. you never find normal again. No, they, don't, they become they become reclusives, really. And they, yeah. they just get, yeah. get, they stay, stay clear of it. Yeah. But um, so it's, it's, it's very sad. I mean, the same things happened to Meghan Markle, too. Uh, yes, it, it's it's you know history repeating itself, really. It is. Yes, you're right. Now let me ask you about Holly's solo stuff, the Blast album. I really like that album a lot. You're on there, I believe.
I've always heard Frank, uh, Holly, I should say, is a little prickly to deal with, but apparently he liked you enough to bring you back for his solo stuff. Yeah, look, I really liked Holly. It, it was his boyfriend. Ah, that was the real, uh, the thing that really fucked things up for Holly, I think, in many ways. Okay. Holly was just a really nice guy next door. He was a real sweetie. And I did two tracks with uh, a producer. I co-produced two tracks with Steve Lovell on the Blast album. Love um, Train, I believe, right? So, Love Train and Americanos. Yeah. And Holly, Holly asked me back to make, make his record with him, another record with him, which was a disaster, I have to say. But I said to him one day, I said, Holly, why, why is it you want me to work with you? And he said, well, Andy, because you're prepared to take risks. You're prepared mm -hmm. to kind of push yourself out there and take a risk. And I thought, well, I guess he's right in some ways. Yeah. You know, my motto, loud, confident, and wrong. Right. <laughs> 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 uh, but I do. But it, that that album was doomed to failure. I'm afraid it was just oh, everything about it was was just wrong. Really. Yeah. Well, the Blast album is good. That yep. one was well, okay, right? Did very very well. Yes. Yeah. Good. Okay. Yeah, I've heard I've heard that same thing about Wolfgang. In fact, I believe they're still together, right? Ah, yeah. I think Wolfgang's been quite ill. Oh. Oh, that's. I, mean, I know when, when Holly when Holly got AIDS and it w ended up in the press, I I called him up and said, "Hi, how are you? Just thinking about oh. you. I hope you get well." And he said to me, he said to me, you're, "You're only one of three people who's actually called me up about it." Wow. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Yeah. That's too bad. But wow. I think Wolfgang's been quite ill. I mean, he certainly they, he smokes a lot, and I think he's just a very difficult man. Mm, that's he's too very, bad. He's a very, very aggressive gay male. That's too bad. And that's, I, I assume that's kind of what's pulled Holly from, you know, he could have had any kind of career he wanted. Oh, and he, instead he sort of decided to retreat. Yeah. He could have had a brilliant career. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that Wolfgang sort of killed, killed that off. I mean, he certainly, he was certainly instrumental in splitting the band up and splitting, getting Holly away from the band. Yeah. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. Paul Rutherford, who was in Frankie, the other the other gay guy, mm -hmm. lovely man, just an absolute sweetheart. Yeah. I've, I've had uh, a very nice well, man. He seems like a nice man. He's yes. always so great whenever he's interviewed. I've had Brian Nash on here a while back, and he was a, he's a good guy too, but he, he carries with him a lot of anger and resentment toward Trevor about all of this. They, they all do, as do, as do propaganda. Yeah, and I was I wanted to ask you about that because, and Brian's take on it is that because it was Trevor's label and yep. studio and yep. production and everything, yep. Yep. Trevor took as long as he wanted, spent as much money as he wanted, and none of that trickled back down to the guys. And Very so, yeah. yeah, I mean, Brian makes money on the Frankie Says Relax t-shirts and stuff like that, but hardly any on any of the music. And he is really resentful about that. And yeah, that, that was my understanding is that Trevor, as great an artist as he is, and that music is so good, he ate up everyone's profits with his tinkering, it seems like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, there was time we were working on, I think, we must be working on two tribes. And I was in the control with Stephen, Stephen Lipson. And Stephen said, you know what? He said, we're in this completely unique situation where we can have whatever we want. Order another keyboard in, take another day, do this, do that. There was no, there was no sort of financial constraint at all. Mm -hmm. And I think that the whole Pleasure Dome food bill alone 
in nineteen in the mid eighties came to something like seventy eight thousand pounds. Oh my god! <laughs> it was oh. a lot of money, a yeah. lot of money, and I, I I completely understand Brian's point of view on this because. Uh, I mean, I was there just doing what I was told. I mean, Andy, come and play, come and play, come and play. Yeah, but, yeah. And you know, for my trouble, uh, although I didn't get any any points on uh, on. Oh, I wondered. No points on relax. Huh? Oh, but but Trevor did very kindly. He came up to me at the end and said, "Look, Andy, given given the amount of time you've spent on this, because I was I was with him a long time." He said, "We're going to give you one one quarter of a point on the album." Oh, nice. Okay, that's not so bad. Well, it still comes in. <laughs> yeah, good. You know. Good. Okay. Now, I want to ask you about an album that is a favorite of mine that, and I don't even know how much you worked on this, but it's Billy Squire's Enough is Enough album. love Billy Squire. That was produced by Peter Collins. Yeah. And I did quite a lot of work on it, I think. I mean, really? I don't know much about it. He was, I think Billy was going through a Coke phase at the time. Ooh. Oh, uh, that's too bad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's some of them did. And so uh, he wasn't very easy for me. I didn't find it very communicating with him. Uh, but uh, I did quite a lot of keyboards on that. I need to listen to it to tell you what I did. But Okay. But. Okay. Uh, yeah, that was another one that Peter Peter got me involved in, as well as with Gary Moore, of course. Yes. Um, now, Freddie Mercury became friendly, I believe, with Billy Squire, and he sings on a couple of songs on Enough is Enough. Do you remember any of that? Maybe I you crossed paths with Freddie at other times. No, John, I wouldn't have been there. I was doing purely the keyboards. So okay. I would do the keyboards, go, bang. Okay. I was very okay. much kind of an overdub man, rather than playing a lot of stuff live. Got it. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I love that album. Um, do you know David Frank, the yes. uh, keyboard player? He, I believe, plays on that album too. He's been on here as well. I love so much of his stuff with the system. They were fantastic. Well, David's a lovely guy. Uh, we we played keyboards together on Annie Lennox tour. Oh, you did? Mm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's a very good keyboard player. He's a lovely man. Yeah, he's fantastic. He had okay. that big, big hit with Christina Aguilera, didn't he? Yes, Genie in a Bottle. He co-wrote yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, that'll that'll set you up for a while. Oh, um, yes. 
So let's talk about the Pet Shop Boys because I believe um, now you we've we've been kind of going around all over the place, but I think we need to establish that my understanding, at least, of your career is that originally the idea was to be a keyboard player, a keyboard player for hire, a session musician, whatever it is. And along the way, you began morphing into more of a producer. And I think that happened with them. Is that right? Uh, it was certainly one of the first ones. Yes. I mean, I've never really had this sort of great kind of plan as to why I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do that and something else and something else. Although I seem to have kind of covered most bases in the music industry one way or another. Right. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I was invited in to play the keyboards for, for the Pet Shop Boys. And I did an awful lot of the work on Actually. The mm -hmm. And obviously the, the hits we had, I had with them there was It's a Sin, Always on My Mind, and Heart. Yeah. was stuck on at the end it had been it had actually been um produced by shep pettibone yeah i love him okay and the guys didn't really like what had happened they they, they said they came up to me one day and said look andy we're gonna we want to remake heart i hadn't played on it at that point i mean not that track that was one track i hadn't played on and they said look would you like to produce it with us i said whoa yeah i'd love to and and so we uh, we went into a little bit of pre-production for a couple of days, just getting some of the basic things done, and we made the whole track in three days, including mixing it. Oh, wow! Really fast. Yeah, fast. And there were there were key things that happened that made it happen, like that da 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 da. Uh huh. Was, which which just absolutely sort of nails the track, really. That's the hook. That, you came that, up with that with. with with Shep Pettibone, it was a PPG, I think, a PPG bill, bell sound, bing, 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 bing. It didn't have any kind of attitude to it. Huh. So on my Fairlight Series 3, I put together uh, a sample of Neil's vocal, uh, a sample of Pavarotti, mm -hmm. and a sample of Wendy from Prefab Sprout. What? And I mixed them all together, and that's the sound. What? Really? Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh my gosh. Who thinks of stuff like that? You people well, are amazing to me. Well, I did. I, I did. I mean, I said, I said, let's get, let's get this hook happening. And I had Neil's vocal on, so I, I, I got to work and I pulled out a few other things and they were very happy with it, I have to say. Genius. 
What a stroke of genius. You're Sim- the best, Andy. Simply, uh, it was. It was a good moment, I have to say. It was, it was the hook. But the other thing was he'd, he'd, he'd sung the track four times, and it didn't kind of quite work for some reason. Mm. I don't mm. know why. So I just I said to Tony, the engineer at the time, just put the four vocals in together. Bang. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That is the best. I love it. Story after that. Yeah. I, I, I went to see my manager at the time, Steve Barnett, who is now the head of the Capitol. He's the, he's oh, the boss okay. of Capitol Records. Lovely man. And I took it into Steve when he was managing me because he, he was managing me uh, as, as part of a kind of a team with Gary Moore and a few other people. And I played it to him and he said, Andy, it's a hit. It's a, it's a hit. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, you know what, Steve? I mean, EMI kind of might release it as the fourth single or something. And they don't seem to have much hope in it. And Steve said, it's a hit. It's definitely not a problem. Went straight in number one for three weeks. Nice. Which is nice. why he probably is, he's the right person to have a Capitol Records, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> he, he knew his stuff. Uh, he was great. He was great. So uh, good. I was devastated when he left England to go to America, I have to say. It was not what I wanted. Right. Now, you stuck around. The Pet Shop Boys must have liked you enough because you work with Liza Minnelli on their Results album. Yeah, I did, yeah. Yeah, what just, was that like? That is such an odd pairing, but that album is great. I mean, it basically sounds like a Pet Shop Boys album with her singing instead of Neil, but yeah. it's fantastic. Yeah, it's great. Uh, I mean, I really enjoyed my time. I really liked her too. She was lovely. Really? Okay, good. Yeah. I mean, but but obviously, having come from sort of Hollywood royalty, a lot, I found often a lot of stars who come from Hollywood royalty are more real as people. Than the uh, you know the people the kind of self-made kind of pop yeah. stuff if you like, and yeah. I you know she'd she'd hang around outside outside Studio Two right next to the Space Invader machine where George <laughs> collared me, and she just was in t-shirt and jeans. She'd hang out and we'd chat, and she was lovely, really, really? fabulous, yeah, great um, great girl. 
I mean, she's obviously had a, had a problems and whatever, and yeah. had a marriage with David Guest, which was particularly <laughs> bizarre. So bizarre. Yeah. yeah I, met, I, I met David because he was, he was looking after Petula Clark when I was producing her in L.A., Oh, wow. And so I met him, and he was one strange dude, I have to say. <laughs> he seemed like it. Well, he looks like one. He's yeah. gay. Why they got married, I don't know. I just have to believe that was some kind of a business arrangement that helped the both of them at the time. I don't get it. Yeah. I mean, David had this thing for, you know, older kind of retro stars. He was huge on Dusty um, and Machula oh. as well. And and Lyson, he just liked he just liked uh, he is a fan of sort of nostalgic nostalgia of music, really. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I could see that. Oh, interesting. Um, now, this is an odd question, but I, I mean, I don't pay close attention to Liza's music output, or you know, her no. song and dance thing is not really my thing, other than the results album because it's Pet Shop Boys. Was uh, you know, is she as mag? She must have something when you meet her in person that makes men just want to date her, want to marry her, fall in love with her, have a crush on her. Is there some kind of magnetism there that is very obvious? I guess so. I mean, you know, she's, she's a big star. Yeah. She was then. She just seems to have like a lot of famous boyfriends who, you know, want to be with her. And I'm always baffled by this. Well, cabaret was obviously the thing that really kind of nailed it for her. Yeah. But uh, I just saw her as just a nice kind of regular girl. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. I just thought she was just really, really nice. Okay. I always wondered what the magic, like maybe there's some even bigger magic that I don't get that you have to be in, see her in person to understand. I don't know. Um, uh, I okay. don't feel any sort of attraction to her as such. Whereas with Petula, she was, she was lovely. Mm, really? She, yeah, yeah. There's something about Petula Clark that's very lovely and very special. Oh, interesting. And I have to say with Dusty too, Dusty Springfield. Really? Oh, I mean, the first time she came in to sing on sing on tracks I did with her, Reputation. First time she came in, and she she started singing. I mean, that history, that voice, that, voice, that thing. Yeah. Although she was getting ill at the time, bless her. But but it was in a magic moment. It's just one yeah. of those things you don't you never forget. You know. Yeah. What are the greatest uh, white female voices in history? And no, I don't think people think about absolutely. her often enough. No. You know what I mean? Absolutely. She was also a lovely, lovely lady. 
Good. And I got to work with her because I didn't work with her with the Pet Shop Boys. She, I worked on a couple of other tracks, one being Reputation, which was the title track of her one of her albums. Yeah. And we were just in, in Psalm West again, very close to that Space Invader machine. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, we just were talking, and she's absolutely crazy about cats. She had a great big, uh, a great big rag doll, white rag doll called Nicholas. And we started talking and we suddenly realized we had this thing about cats in common because we had two beautiful Maine Coons. We oh. still have two beautiful Maine Coons. They're not the same ones, sadly, right. but okay. we have two beautiful Maine Coons. And so we just sort of struck up a friendship. I mean, Dusty would call up sometimes and leave messages on my answer phone for our cats. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> it's mad. Oh, that's great. I love it. She wasn't well. And yeah. track Reputation made it onto the album, but the other track... She just couldn't sing, basically. It was just yeah. not, not, it wasn't right for her. It was a Diane Warren song, but a uh, lovely song, but it just wasn't yeah. right for her. Oh, that's too bad. Now, Krista Berg's Lady in Red. Is oh, that yeah. you? Yeah. about this that's i mean that's one of the most iconic songs ever it's certainly for americans anyway the only song anyone knows about krista berg it, uh, trust me they don't want to hear anymore that's <laughs> he seems like a weird dude by the way i've heard interviews with him but uh, anyway tell us about this well i was just invited in i don't know where he, where he heard about me but i was invited in and we did uh, the lady in red or i call it the lady in bed <laughs> as a reference to certain things. Um, I think we had no idea it was going to be such a big hit. But funny enough that the the choir the choiry vocal sound on that was actually George Michael from from uh, from his uh, Careless Whisper days. Oh, wait. So George Michael's voice is appearing on Lady in Red. Yeah, it was it was looped into a kind of a vocal pad basically. Wow. But yes, it did. Wow. Now and and it was um, it was a big, it was a big hit. It was yes. Big... And it still endures, 
you know, in kind of a cheesy, I don't know, ballady anthem kind of way. It's very cheesy, yeah. Yeah. It is one of the cheesiest things I ever worked on, <laughs> I have to say. But he invited me back to a studio in uh, Switzerland for the second album. And it was just the most horrible experience. Oh, why? Bass player, very, very, very well-known bass player who played bass on the on the track. And in the studio comments book, where he left, he put, nice studio, shame about the artist. Oh, that's too bad. I know it's funny you say that. One of the very, very few artists who I have bad feelings about. And I've worked with a lot of them, a lot of people. Yeah. But yeah. He, he wasn't good. You know, he kind of comes across that way rather oddly in interviews you hear with him. Sort of... Um, more egotistical than you would think somebody who's achieved the level of success he's achieved yeah. would need to be. Because, I mean, like I said, frankly, in the States, he's a one-hit wonder, and most of those people know the song and don't know who he is or his name. Yeah. But um, he doesn't know that. He you know, he seems to think, I don't know. I, I don't know him at all. I've never listened to his music. I particularly dislike him for the fact that he was so horrible to his record producer. The guy oh, was producing the second album. He was just horrible to him, and I just thought, how can you, how can you behave like that to people? Yeah, but that's yeah. what. He does. Uh, that's too bad. Okay, um, we'll move on to somebody else then. Are you playing the synths on Godly and Cream's "Cry"? Yes. There's that one sound that goes all the way through, but actually, dum, 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 dum. You know the sound I'm in? Yeah, uh-huh. That's me on my, P that's my PPG. Really? But yeah, so so Stephen and I played on that. That was done in Studio 2 in Psalm West, just with that studio with a Space Invader machine. Just <laughs> that's the Oracle. <laughs> Everything revolves around the Space <laughs> And it was a great track. I mean, they were, they were good, too. They were, yeah. they were very good. But it was a, it was a wonderful song. Yeah, it sure is. And it but it's the mood created by well, it's a the mood created in general, but a lot of that has to do with the synths. Yeah. And if you're the guy creating you're the guy creating that mood well, or enhancing I, it at least. Yeah, I do the synths on that, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, Let me ask you about that because like I said earlier, I think my understanding is that you know, you you probably come from a 
jazz background. I was reading your wiki, and of course you, you know, you study piano and keyboards, and I I can't imagine that learning how to program Fairlights and everything was part of the plan originally. It was probably to be a piano player in a jazz group. Am I wrong? More, I was more classically based, John. Okay, okay. Than, than jazz based. But uh, it, it sort of started off, but I had I had a, my own kind of jazz rock band called Rock Workshop in, 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 in Stoke-on-Trent. And we, we played every Friday night at a, at a pub. And it's very popular, actually, very popular. So I had a kind of a smattering of jazz, a smattering of rock, a smattering of pop, and got obviously classical, which is what yeah. I actually actually studied, and I taught it for a little while. But uh, in terms of how do I morph from one to another, well, it's kind of just a gradual process. I mean, I know that I bought a when I was working in rock workshop, I was uh, using a Fender Rhodes seventy three and a Mini Moog. Mm. And I got pretty good with programming this mini moog. So actually, when I went to audition with Straubs, they were they were kind of knocked out at how much I knew about the moog and how much, how I could make it sound. And, and mm-hmm. so I sort of started getting into synths basically, and it kind of all kind of slowly kind of follows on and on and on from there. Okay, okay, yeah. When I listened to, for instance, I was listening to the song "Spaceman" by Babylon too. Oh, That's yeah. a great tune. This song has to be such a far cry from where Andy thart, thought he would begin his career. But, I mean, he's obviously good at what he does, which is why he keeps getting brought in and to produce guess, and play on everything. I guess, I mean, my, my job description doesn't really exist anymore as such. Yeah, true. Of the advent of the technology. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, Babylon Zoo, I came in and I sorted out all the kind of the, 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 the slowing down and speeding up stuff. Uh-huh, uh-huh. My Fairlight at the time, my wow. Series 3. And that was a challenge. But uh, we knew that was going to be big too. We knew that was going to go at number one because it was uh, it was attached to, was it the Pepsi commercial? I don't know. That was a UK thing. They don't mean uh, anything in the States, but I like that song. Yeah, <clears throat> but they, they use that. And okay. That's what helped it go to number one. Okay. Yeah, I just I'm I'm just thinking wow, the same guy who studied classical piano 
is the guy working on Spaceman right here. And you just wouldn't think that there would be a connection. And yet it's the same guy. Yeah, well, you know, you, you get around, don't you? Yeah, right. <laughs> I guess. You kind of just get around and you do stuff. Yeah. And it, it sort of one thing leads to another, really. Right, right. Although, you know, right now we're in this sort of real dip where nothing much can happen. Yeah, it's so Apart true. me getting on with my album, which I'm doing. Yes, um, I have the end of our conversation blocked out to talk to you about that because I am very interested what this imaginary soundtrack is so let's put a pin in that because i want to get through some of these but then i want to hear all about this now omd the sugar tax album you produce i believe a couple of songs on that album i think three songs on it yes okay what was that like because that was you know that was andy trying to carry on without paul and he does because of uh sailing on the seven seas or whatever he has success in the uk i lived in the uk uh, in 1991 i remember that song being really huge I mean, Andy, Andy's a lovely guy. I mean, we, we got along really well. Uh, I, I think the misfortune there was sometimes in your career, you you make a decision and sometimes it's the right one, sometimes it's the wrong yeah. one. But Holly Johnson's album was looming up and I'd said to Andy, well, look, I'm, I, can only, I can only do three tracks and I've got to go and work with Holly. And I wish I hadn't. I wish I'd stayed with Andy McCluskey uh, yeah. and stood that album out for as long as he wanted me to work with him on it rather than go and work on Holly's album. That was a mistake. Yeah. But yeah. these happened, hey, you know, Shit happens sometimes. Right, right. But uh, yeah, I mean, OMD were very cool. I mean, he was he was great. We had a lot of fun together. Andy McCluskey seems like one of the funnest guys to be around. Yeah, he's pretty he's pretty full on. He's great. Yeah, I believe it. I believe it. Um, let's talk about Seal and human being. to 
you produce that whole album? Or no, what did you do for Seal? On Human Being, I did a lot of the Fairlight programming and, and kind of fixing things up. But that one, no, Human Being was produced by Trevor. Oh, was it? Wait, Human Being was? Yeah. I thought Trevor had moved on by then. No. Don't think so. Okay, okay. Uh, but I did a lot of the programming. I wasn't producing it. Okay. Oh, that makes sense. See, I... This is my own failing, I guess. I First of all, I bought that album when it first came out because the I love the song Human Being so much. And that then I didn't stopped, care. That yes. But I didn't care for the rest of the album as much. No. And so somewhere along the line, I lost it and I've never bought it back or anything. And I th always thought that that was after Trevor had left. And so I didn't think that you were or he were involved in that one. I guess I was wrong. No, I only I only worked I only only worked with Trevor on 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 a couple of the tracks I think, but uh, it was a lot of work. I mean, it was it was a lot of trying to figure out how to make something work that wasn't really happening in the first place. Mm, I could see that. You know, I could see that. Yeah, that was the did, that, that was the problem really. Did you have anything to do with the prior Seal albums? Because those first two, especially the first one, no, I, I love those. No, I didn't have anything to do with them at all. No. Okay. Just a human being. Yep. Okay. Okay. Well, I only have a few left here that I want to throw at you real quick. Um, yeah. Let's, uh, you know, I've talked about Nick Kershaw and Grace Jones a lot with other people. So do you have a great Grace Jones or Nick Kershaw story that you just are dying to tell us? Well, Slave to the Rhythm, I basically just came in and I just did my, did my bits on it. But I did, I did, uh, I did meet her outside, uh, outside uh, in the lounge in what used to be Marcus Studios, and we had a long talk. And that was at the time, I think, of the Falklands crisis. And wow. she just finished doing the Bond movie. She's a very interesting but strange person to talk yeah. with. <laughs> so the least, I believe but, it. But but Nick Nick Kershaw was lovely. He was he was great to work with, and I imagine you got lots of stuff from Julian on that. Yeah, Julian uh, just could not stop raving about him. Said he's just one of these musical geniuses. He's a fun guy to have around.
he's fantastic. That seems to be the the reputation of Nick Kershaw. No, he's he's fantastic. He's a very good musician. Good. And he pretty much knew what he wanted. I mean, he basically, from what I could see, he pretty much drove the show. Okay. Peter was just there to do a bit of steering and guiding sometimes. Yeah. This was the Riddle album, which is fantastic, by the way. And um, yeah. Okay. I was wondering about that. Let's talk about Berlin. I think you're on the uh, Count Three and Pray album somewhere. Is that right? Yeah, that was that was not one of my most happy experiences. I have to be honest. Oh no, really? Yeah, yeah. Why? Well, it was very strange. It was very strange. We were working out at the Manor, and it was going really well. Uh-huh. It was going really, really well. And then the A and R man Tom Zuta came over, uh, and he was kind of raving about it, saying, oh, this is fantastic. This is going to be great. Whoa. Uh-huh. And that all seemed good. And then I think the band suddenly felt like they kind of changed and it became uh-huh. became very much, you know, okay, we're, we're going to do it our way. We want to do this and we want to do that. And it just became a complete bore, basically. Really? Yeah, yeah. It just became something I wanted to get out of. Oh, man. Yeah. And, you know, you, you have wonderful experiences, but you have the, the odd difficult one. Yeah, yeah. Was that, um, was there something going on in the dynamic? I know that John and Terry dated for a long time. I don't know if they were still together at that time. Maybe that was causing some of the drama? It could be. I mean, John was quite a complicated sort of guy. Really? Uh, but you know what? And I mean, I, this is a gross... Uh, overgeneralization but from my experience musicians from la are the most difficult ones to work with ah huh huh okay it might just be a cultural thing i don't know yeah but i was never really very happy working with them to be honest okay that's interesting because terry nunn has sort of branded herself as just like the most charming fun nice polite kind person in pop but and maybe she was oh look i think she's lovely terry's lovely yeah, okay. it was just the, the combination of the three and the way it all okay. worked. Okay. And we also brought in this guy, guitarist Elliot Easton from the Cars. Oh, sure, from the Cars. Yeah, which was a very strange experience as well. Oh, really? Well, he Did liked he... the monitor incredibly loudly. Um, oh. But that just gets, it kills you basically. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, it was just something just wasn't quite right there. I mean, okay. it, might have been, it was me that wasn't quite right. Uh, maybe. Of course, they went on to have that huge hit with Georgia Moreau to take my breath away. Yeah. yeah. But the only person on that from the band was, uh, was Terry singing. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. That was it. And yeah. I think probably Giorgio had the right idea there. Yeah. Yeah. He might've. Um, yeah. Sing her in and leave the other two out of it. Right. Yeah. George, I've had a lot of people on here who've worked with Giorgio and, um, he seems very single minded too. I, I love and respect so much of the music that he's made. He just seems like an interesting personality to work with behind the scenes. He's a, he's a, he's a, he was absolutely charming to me when we worked together. Absolutely lovely. I thought he was a lovely man and obviously, you know, hugely talented and uh-huh. very much, you know, the man of the moment, really, in yeah, terms yeah. of what, what he did and and also the people who had work for him. And it was just an honor just to do a, just spend a couple of days with him, basically working Good. on some Donna Summer tracks. Yeah. Oh, yes, Donna Summer. What did you do with Donna Summer? You know, I I think they may have, they may have ended up just being demos. Okay, okay. I'm not I'm not entirely sure, but uh, 
as I say, it was just kind of like in and out, but he was lovely. He was absolutely charming. Good. Okay. Um, I got a couple more here and these are ones that I'm not even sure. I don't know if there's much of a story here or not, but you mentioned prefab sprout earlier. They're a great band. Um, I, I will say that I've never quite warmed to them as much as other people have. Some of it gets a little too quirky for me to fully enjoy, but I respect them a lot. Patty's a fantastic songwriter. Tell me about working with Patty. Patty's an absolute genius. Guess what? Summer's arrived. I feel the world's on my side. The Brooklyn Bridge stretches below me. A billion souls are dying to know Well, here I am, loaded with promise And knee-deep embrace What I want is here on my face And I feel like I own the whole day Yeah, he's fantastic. I, I only did one track with them, and that was Hey Manhattan. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> Why only the one track? I, I think they were, were always had that mindful to want to use Thomas Dolby. I think. Oh yeah. Because he'd 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 done the the other work with them, but it was a joy to work with work and work with them. I mean, I remember I met them and I'd heard the demo of Hey Manhattan, and I just they were they, they were they were in CBS with Muff Winwood. I came in. We're talking about it, and I said, "What I think we really need to do with this track is it should have real, real strings, real orchestra on it." Uh-huh. And everybody's eyebrows kind of lifted up. And I said, "Yeah, trust me, it, it's it's such a beautiful song. It will give it a, a degree of authenticity that uh, that you won't get if you just use synthesizers. You know, not using strings for the sake of it, but just because it's such an important part, actually, of the of the of the song." And so we used a. We used a, a lovely guy called John Altman to do the arrangement. Mm. And in fact, I took Paddy over to meet with John and they just completely hit it off. They, they, they had a great repartee together and uh, both huge fans of Stephen Sondheim, of course. Oh. Uh, who is, you know, one of the great, great. Uh, yeah. Songwriters. Songs. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, it was. It was great. These two just chattering away, and we we got the very very best out of John, and just a magical, un- uncomplicated string arrangement that, that was just very very beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it was a fan- it's a fantastically gorgeous kind of nostalgic tune. It's so be- it is it's gorgeous. It, it, oh, it is so cool. much of what they did. I mean, Patty could do no wrong there for a while. He yeah. um, 
he was just very, very, very gifted, right on the money. And he was with his girlfriend at the time, Wendy. Mm. Uh, and obviously, she didn't do much, but she added character to it. She added okay. the sound of her voice was just a, something completely different from what other people would normally um, yeah. do in that situation. Right. And his brother was was on it too, and he was lovely. Mm. And of course, uh, Neil um, Conti. Is it Neil Conti? I don't know. Lovely drama. Okay. Okay. And it was it was good. It was really it, again that was done very quickly. It was done about four days. Wow. Wow. Um, okay. Let me ask you about Corey Hart. Is there a story there <laughs> on the Young Man Running album? Well, I, he seems I, like I, an odd person in your on your resume. By the he, way. Well, I came in. I came in to do a. Um, I, I came in to do uh, do some Fairlight overdubs on a Corey Hart track in Psalm. West Studio One, and Corey was there, and we, we got along really well. And so when Young Man Running came up, he asked me whether I'd like to produce it for him. And I said, yeah, yeah, let's 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 do that. So 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 we did, and it was a different, different, slightly different thing for me. The thing that was really exceptional about that is we we went out for four weeks to Air Studios in Montserrat and recorded there. Now that was something else. That was, <laughs> that was wonderful, John. That Legendary, was, I believe it. So many good records have come out of that place. Yes, I just imagine you guys laying, I don't know where it's situated, but I imagine it being within walking distance to a beach and everyone lays on the beach sunning until a muse strikes them. And then they say, I got an idea for a song. And everyone, you know, gets up off the beach, puts their flip flops on, wraps the towel, goes in, does whatever, <laughs> has a cup of tea, and then goes back out to the beach and lays there until, you know, inspiration strikes again. 
you you have a very kind of romantic view of what we <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, just how I imagine. Every time people talk about Montserrat, that's what I'm guessing is happening. Well, it's like it's like up in a valley in a way, part of a valley, and you look down and you can see see the uh, the black sand, of course, the black volcanic sand, and and the yachts and whatever. But we we did we only went there a couple of times. We spent the rest of the time working. And anyway, right outside the control room door is a beautiful pool, uh, and so you just literally you just. Uh, come out, dive in, have a quick swim, back in again. Yeah. And it was a very, very uh, creative time. It was very easy to work there, I have to say. Yeah. It was lovely. The, the food was out of this world, out of this world. And it was just a magical place. And it's such a terrible shame that it got uh, decimated by first the Hulk hurricane and then the volcano. Yeah. Was George Martin there at all? Did you cross paths with him? No, I didn't cross paths with George there at all. I mean, I've been lucky. I've been lucky enough to work in all three of the air studios. The one that was up at, on the fourth floor, I think, in Oxford Street. Then, of course, the wonderful, the wonderful studio in uh, Lindhurst Manor, Lindhurst, sorry, in Hampstead, and and of course, the the one in Montserrat. Okay. But we had a nice time with Corey. You know, we had a good time. Good. He seems like a nice guy. He is a nice. Um, uh, okay. Lastly, I think I should ask you about Tapal. Because you did the Promise album. Yeah, I did, yeah. What was, any stories about Tapal? I mean, they're mostly just heart and soul over here in the States. Yeah, there would be. Any stories about Tapal? Well, no, we, we, we did almost the whole thing in uh, Rockfield Studios in Monmouthshire. And uh, it's, it's quite hard working, being with a band uh, when uh, got something to do and you can't really get away from each other it's it's very it's very full on but we had a good time carol deckers has a what has a wonderful voice mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. basically it was carol and ron mm-hmm. uh, old friend and then the rest of the guys were hired hands and the only thing i think about that is i wish i wish i'd made a record with carol and ron and left the rest of the band out of it and brought mm-hmm. it we need i think it would have been a better record to be honest mm. interesting because they were well, they weren't the greatest musicians in the world uh they were okay, but they, they weren't exceptional. And yeah. I just always thought that Carol and Ron deserved more. Mm. But anyway, after, after, we'd, after we'd done it, done it all, we came back to London and it was mixed by Chris Lord Algy in Studio 2 mm. of Townhouse Studios at the time. 
And it was really funny because uh, Chris arrived late on the Sunday and he had to go back to Heathrow and get the, he got the wrong bag and he had to go back and change it or whatever. Anyway, we finally meet up, we finally meet up at the studio um, late Sunday evening and agreed to start on the Monday morning. And uh -huh. so I said, well, I'll come in, Chris, and just give you a bit of a natter and off we go. So I came in, it must be about 10 o'clock. There was Chris there sitting on the sofa with his Game Boy. <laughs> and uh, he said, okay, we're ready to go. So we pointed him at a track. I said, that's great, Chris. Shall I, shall I, come, back, uh, shall I come back in the evening, leave you to do it? He said, no, 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 come back about three o'clock. I said, oh, okay. Mm. So mm -hmm. I turn up and uh, at three o'clock and he's sitting on the sofa playing with his Game Boy. <laughs> and I said, how's it gone, Chris? He said, oh, it's finished. I said, <laughs> Um, so we listened to it. It sounded great. So I, I, I called the band, who were really surprised. I said, uh -huh. you better come over, guys. He's done it. And they came over, and we loved it. We signed off on it. The band went back to rehearsals, and I said to Chris, uh, okay, let's do this one. Shall I come back in the morning? He said, no, 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 no. Come back about 7 or 8 o'clock. Wow. Oh, okay. So I came back in at 7 o'clock. There's Chris on the sofa playing the Game Boy. <laughs> <laughs> We'd done That's another good. one. We had we, the first day we mixed two tracks, and I then went off and he started work on the third, which which was finished in the morning of the following day. I mean that guy's fast. He's wow really fast. Wow. But he uses his own presets. Okay. Uh, using a Mitsubishi tape machine, and what he'd insist that our, our assistant, a great guy called Peter Lewis, uh, he insisted that the master was cut out. And, and that the only tape on the spool of the Mitsubishi was the track being used. Ah. And the reason for that is because it goes faster, basically. Yeah, yeah. And so we just steamed through this. Then we had to come back and do a few recalls. And that was it, really. Wow. Uh, I mean, he's very much, you know, uh, he does his own thing, basically. Mm -hmm. Very much. But he's good at it. Do you remember what one what like the first day? What was the song that you that he worked on so quickly? Because I want to play a little bit of it. Do you remember? I can't remember. Okay. Honestly, I can't remember. Okay, no big deal. Um, a long time ago. Yeah, but uh, he was fast. He was very. I mean, Chris does what Chris does very very well. Yeah. I mean, if you book Chris, you get a Chris Lord algae mix. Basically, that's what it is. He's he's a legend. Um, okay, now I have to ask you a question. Do you have an Oscar for Slumdog Millionaire?
No, I do not. I should have had. Uh, when I saw A.R. Raymond, uh, when, I, when, when we came to do 127 hours and mixed that, he apologised that he didn't get me an Oscar. He said he got one for all the rest of the team, but did, they ran out oh. of Oscars. Or oh. Yeah, I know. Well, I, I have an Oscar. I just don't have it, if you see what I mean. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, but that's still, that's a kick in the nuts. That's well, not cool. There you go. That's what, this is what happens. But uh, I mixed that, that whole movie score, I mixed in surround sound in my back room at home. Really? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Whole thing. Oh my gosh. Using wow. using my Fairlight at the time and also Pro Tools. But I mixed the whole thing mixed the whole thing at home. Yeah. That I mean, I was gonna ask you about this. I mean, obviously there's an ease there. You don't have to leave. You just go into the other room and you win an Oscar for it, basically. <laughs> but do you we miss had no the... idea. We had no yeah. idea at all this was gonna happen. Of course. And and frankly that I mean that movie people love it but it's an odd movie to have had the success that it did because it's not a it's not one of those typical like british dramas or whatever that wins best picture oscars but i am curious do you miss the days of you know a month in montserrat with Corey hart or do you it's like you know what i've, I've had my fill of all of that i'd rather just go in the back room and win oscars i you know i've done that i mean this, this kind of brings us on to something you alluded to earlier i mean i've i've done all that sort of stuff working for other people producing other mm -hmm. people I'm really happy working on my own thing. Okay. Okay. You know, so let's that, talk about your own I, thing. That, that, I haven't really done that before. Yeah. Uh, and so it's uh, it's what I want to do, basically. Good. Okay. My understanding, if I go according to your website, is that your own thing is this album called This Time, an imaginary soundtrack. Correct. And I want you to explain to me what that means. Okay. Well, first of all, This Time is a song on the, on the album. Okay which is sung by an incredibly gifted young singer, a girl singer, who was 16 at the time when she sang it. She's mm. fantastic, Matty. Her, her, her voice is just, she's one of the greatest singers I've ever worked with, actually. Wow, wow. She, she, okay. She's fabulous. And she's a fabulous girl, too. But that song was originally written by me and Joanna Desan some 25 or 26 years ago. Mm. So wow. it still isn't quite finished. I've just got to just finish the backing vocals and mix it, and it's done. And so this time is the name of a song, uh, an imaginary soundtrack. Well, I often find that when I listen to soundtrack albums, I'm always disappointed by them because they've been written, they've been scored to picture. So in other words, they only do what needs to be done for it to work with the picture. It doesn't necessarily mean that the music is intrinsically interesting. Mm. And sometimes it isn't. I mean, sometimes it is. Look at look at Van Gallis's Blade Runner, for example. True, true. Yeah. But often the music isn't that interesting. But but it just when you hear it with the movie, it's fantastic, and it just does does its whole thing. Mm -hmm. So what I wanted to do was to produce a soundtrack album, but without the movie. Yeah. So it's imaginary, but it means it's more complex because I have to put the fill the detail in basically to make it work. And so I'm using several artists who are singing because I don't really like singing very much. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, it's it's nearly ready to start coming out. But okay, this virus has messed things up somewhat. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine. As you can, as you can imagine, but I'm, yeah. I think I'm going to get it out despite that. Okay, I'll let you know when it comes. Well, I'll, I'll please put it onto. Um, I mean, if you go onto my website, there, there's snippets of three little bits there anyway. Right. 
not not the main stuff, John, but some of it. Yeah. Okay. But it, so so it's it's basically an imaginary soundtrack. Um, working late at night and I had the TV on and came across the news that there'd be this massacre in this club in Orlando. Mm, right. Just tragic and that kind of kicked me off and I wrote a track called Orlando which is just it, it's very much a it's very much a movie score it's not so much a, uh, a piece of pop music but then I did a I did a uh, track called Postscript, which is an extended version of it, which has got a lot of me in it, a lot of me playing in it. Okay. Last question. We try to cover sensitively in here the business side of things and how people kind of, you know, make a living, especially in music, the business being what it is today. You mm -hmm. talked about not having points on relax, but, you know, you did so much, uh, uh, various levels of success, a lot of it very successful, some kind of is just more out there. Do you do you make a living today on, you know, the stuff you did over your entire career? How do you pay your bills today? What do you do? Well, I still do some work. I still work for other people occasionally. Um, last year I did the keyboards on the mission paid all the keyboards on the Mission Impossible movie. Oh, nice. Cool. Yes. Lorne Balf, the composer, he uh, invited me in, probably foolishly, to <laughs> play the piano on it. Nice. Okay. So you're still going strong. You get pulled in for things and... Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm still going strong. And uh, also, you know, because of all the stuff I've played on, I get a lot of residual performance royalties that come through. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nice. That's what I figured. Fabulous. You know, not working and bang, you know, you get, you get a nice big check occasionally. Yeah, yeah. That's the best. I'm sure, I'm sure that's the same with Julian as well. Yeah, it is. He mentioned that as well. Okay. Yeah, I was just curious. I... um. I say, you know, I talk to a lot of producers and I mention this to all of them. It's, I wonder about you guys specifically because the artists can go out, not right now, but in general can go out, continue to tour and play the hits and everything. But you guys who helped make those hits don't necessarily have that luxury unless there's someone like you or Trevor who are a musician in your own right separately. And then you can be brought in to play on Mission Impossible and stuff like that. So I'm just, I was curious what you guys do to kind of stay solvent over the decades, you know? Well, I mean, I'm hoping that uh, when my album starts to come out, it won't come out in one chunk, it's gonna come out in several small bits, if you like. Okay, okay. I'm hoping that that, that might uh, provoke some interest, but of course, at the moment, you know, no concerts, 
Yeah. No movies being made. Nothing. No. I know. I mean, it's literally, it's just all completely dead. Yep. Yeah. It so, is. so it's a very tough time for people. It is. It's tragic out there. Which is thank, thank God for my royalties. I mean, when I, when I first played on Chaos Whisper, for example, in 1984, yeah, 1984, I just got paid 200 pounds for it, session fee <laughs> on a Sunday. <laughs> but in terms of performance royalties I've had from a company called PPL uh, in the UK, thousands and thousands of pounds oh oh wow just thousands and it ke keeps coming in and of course when george sadly passed away the next royalty statement was, was particularly big because of course people would be yeah. playing as whisper yeah so it's a strange and wonderful thing and of yeah. course we had no idea in the 80s that there'd ever be this sort of fund which would right. sort us, us musicians out who played on all these tracks yeah well which, but it's fair we, well, well, I think it is. I think it yes. is fair, and it's yeah. it's it's just very great. It's wonderful. Yeah. yeah, and you're in a you're in a good spot because there are several musicians who don't make that kind of mailbox money unless they're out touring, and um, you worked on enough good stuff that you get it, and you should, you deserve it. Well, thank you, but uh, yes, I mean the the gigging musicians are just. Oh, there's a friend of mine three doors down who's a trumpet player, very good trumpet player, mm. and. All his tours for the for the next three months have all been cancelled. Right. He's a you know trumpet player for hire and plays in bands and whatever, but nothing at all, nothing there at all. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, I, I honestly don't think it's going to pick up until next year. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm, it's rough out there. God, I hope I'm wrong. One last thing, in case I didn't ask, is there a favorite story of yours that um, when you sit back and you look over your whole career and all this stuff, the people you've met. The Space Invader Machine, whatever it might be, is there a favorite story that rises to the top where you just think you'll never believe what happened to me? And maybe it's hearing it on the radio. Maybe it's a concert you played with Annie. What 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 would it be? Well, I mean, there are there are all sorts of different moments. I mean, certainly, I remember I was driving down the Finchley. I was living up in the Midlands. I was driving down the Finchley Road back to Sarm, and I had the radio on, and I heard two tribes for the first time on the mm. radio. I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> what an amazing track. It yeah. just simply exploded out of the speakers. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that'll do it. And it's it's a great thing to feel that you you've been really part of that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And uh, so I I feel kind of very blessed and very lucky that I've managed to work with some truly great artists and and uh, hopefully I'll get to work with a few more. Yeah. Once, uh, once this 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 thing uh, sort of dies down, and a final story, uh, a little, little story. Yeah. Uh, obviously, you know, I you know, I, I studied uh, at rugby school for four years, and uh -huh. I was lucky enough to uh, study on the chapel organ, which is a huge kind of four man four manual monster. It's a beautiful sounding organ. Mm. Anyway, after I left rugby, I kind of had enough of the public school thing. I really was seriously turned off it. And I sort of rebelled by coming down to London and trying to make it in rock bands or whatever. But kind of coming full circle, I was working in my studio out of Eden uh, in, uh, it must have been 2006 or seven, uh, with my friend Mike, Mike Heim, who was producing the music for Sweeney Todd, mm. uh, which is obviously a Sondheim score. Mm -hmm. And it was agreed that uh, they wanted to put an organ on it. Mm -hmm. And so I said, oh, 
put my hand up here. Uh, why don't why don't why don't we go back to my old school rugby? I'll phone them and see if we can come and we can hire the hire the chapel and we'll go and play the organ on it. So they agreed to rugby agreed to it. So we took a whole mobile Pro Tools rig up there and we recorded me playing the organ for Sweeney Todd. Mm. And it was amazing the moment that Tim Burton walked in and <laughs> this fucking great big hook. Yeah. He loved it. He was in he was in, in heaven, I have to say. Wow. In absolute heaven. And at the end of that, I was thinking, you know what? It'd be really nice to make a virtual instrument out of this organ. It'd be a fantastic mm. thing to do. But yeah. anyway, it kind of went on the, by the by. And then uh, a few years later, I went back with Tim again to play the organ on Frankenweenie. Mm. And we just all thought this is just the most fantastically great sounding organ. The reason the organ sounds so good, by the way, is that it's a large organ, a four manual organ in a medium sized chapel. And so it just gets very loud and it's mm. fantastic. You get a lot mm. of energy from it. Yeah. And so we did that. And then a couple of years ago, I, I called up Paul Thompson, for, who runs a company called Spitfire Audio. Okay. Uh, he, he basically developed it with a partner and I thought how cool would it be if they'd be interested in making this into a virtual instrument with me so mm -hmm. anyway it all came to uh, it all came to the head they came down with me to rugby they heard the organ and we decided to do it and we now have a virtual I collaborated with with a, with a virtual instrument so mm. studied on from the ages of 13 to 17 is now available to uh download as a virtual instrument library from Spitfire Audio. No way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> In fact, if if you want to do this, if you go to, if you Google uh, Spitfire Audio symphonic organ, uh -huh. it'll take you straight to the page where, where you can download it. And if you go down a bit, there's an interview with me talking to Paul Thompson. Really? I'll yeah. go find that right now. Yeah, I think you might find that interesting. That but is fascinating. It's a great sounding organ. And one of the reasons I've been waiting from, to, to complete my album is my plan is to have that organ on every single track of the album. Mm. But in, in a different guise, maybe it's a bass pedals, maybe it's sort of textural somewhere, maybe it's a bit of whatever. Yeah. So each track is going to have two instruments on it. First is the organ itself, now that, now that we've got it made. Uh-huh. And the other is a, a track, a sound called Carol, which is a sample I made from a, a, a session singer when I was at Ridge Farm working with Frankie Goes to Hollywood, which is one of Trevor Horn's favorite sounds. Mm. You know, Slave to the Rhythm, when it starts, mm -hmm. big chum. Yes. That's Carol. Really? Yeah, that's Carol. So Carol is going to appear somewhere in some guys on every single track as well. No. So it'll give the album, a, I haven't done all this yet, but it'll yeah. give the album a certain sort of, it'll define it in a certain way. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, Great. So it's I kind of, kind of going, going back to my, going back to my past. Also that, that sound on cry, doom, 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 yeah. doom, doom, keeps going. that's Carol too. I could, now that you say this, I'm going to go back. I bet I hear it in all kinds of things now that I didn't recognize before. Yeah, that's great. Fortunately, uh, Trevor Horn doesn't have my sound set samples. He 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 can't get hold of it, which is good. Good. So the okay. only two people who have this particular sound is me, and also I gave it to Stephen Lipson. There you go. And we're the only two people in the world who have that sound that we can use. And it got sampled and created in a PPG wave term. 
And it's just a particular kind of thing, really. It's, yeah. an, it's an interesting sound. It, it's just another keyboard sound, but with a lot of character in it. Oh. And so that's going to be on. So those two things, the organ and carol, are going to be on every single track. Very cool. Very check, cool. Check out the organ site though, because I will. You, it's it's a pretty good sound. Okay, I will. That's great. And I'll be putting cool. my own demo up there in the next couple of months cool. as well for them. Well, thank you, Andy. Thanks for doing this with me. It's uh, you've done so much that I love. It really means a lot. John, it's an absolute pleasure. All right, there you have it, Andy Richards. That was so much fun. I hope you guys love that conversation. I don't know how you couldn't. Again, as we say on here a lot, if you just love music and stories about musicians and rock stars and what they're like and the creative process and how things come to be, every story in here was gold. Andy is the best. Thank you once again, Andy, for talking with me. And we had to close it out. He talked about how impactful that was hearing two tribes on the radio. We got to close it out with two tribes, of course. Now, next week's guest is almost a one and done. So this band came into prominence in the 80s and had everything working for them to have gotten huge. Charismatic lead singer, big time producer, all the stops and nothing and it didn't quite work out however i think most of you will know who this band is they did manage a second album that barely trickled out barely made a dent so our guest next week is a member of this band and he tells his story in such a way it is so fascinating so anyway i hope you guys will come back next week and check that out Huge thanks, as always, to Jan the Mamakevich, my right-hand man. Thank you, buddy, for being my partner in all of this. I'm so grateful for you. We love all of you so much. Find us on Facebook, like our page, send us a message on there. You, the polls are over for now. I may find a way and see if I can get them back up there. Facebook, I think Facebook took that thing uh, off. I don't think you can do polls on the on the Facebook page anymore. Anyway, you can send us a message. Or you can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Um, we should have another bonus deep dive coming out this week. It is with another prominent producer uh, who... Uh, they, he, we're talking about one of the... <laughs> one of the most quintessentially British, British bands of the last 40 plus years. And I think you're going to love this conversation. Okay? Anyway... Thanks, folks. We love you.